0: And on June 12th, in Singapore, I'll be meeting with Kim Jong-un to pursue a future of peace and security for the world, for the whole world.
1: That was President Trump announcing the meeting with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Welcome to the Got Science podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Big things are happening between the U.S. and North Korea, and that's what we're talking about today on the Got Science podcast. And stick around after the interview for another example of sidelining science with Shreya Durvasula. For better or for worse, the Trump administration has announced that President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un will meet in a summit in Singapore— on June 12th. The following interview was recorded just before this date was announced, but close enough to the rumors swirling of an impending meeting that we wanted to get an important and new perspective about what might be on the table. Here on the Got Science podcast, we've talked to our global security experts about the capabilities of various North Korean nuclear-armed missiles and the physics behind missile defense systems but we haven't really gotten into the humans who are operating all this machinery, specifically the motivations and desires of North Korean leadership. Nor have we examined what's motivating the leadership of the countries with the most to lose should war break out, South Korea, China, and Japan. Luckily, my colleague, Dr. Gregory Kulaki, was in town recently from China, where he's lived for many years as our China project manager. He's an expert in cross-cultural communication and the geopolitics of the region he calls home, having spent the last 15 years with UCS promoting dialogue among world leaders and NGOs on nuclear arms control and space security. He joined us on the podcast to talk about what North Korea actually wants and what they're afraid of, what many Americans don't know about Chinese politics, what will happen now that Kim Jong-un has agreed to stop further nuclear testing, how this summit with Trump and Kim Jong-un might go, and how to say a few words in Mandarin. Gregory, ni hao. Welcome to the Got Science podcast. Ni hao. You work with physicists and technical experts in the U.S. and China that study nuclear weapons, missile defense, rocket launch tests, and specifically the nuclear program in North Korea. Your role here at UCS is to pull the technical pieces together with your expertise in cross-cultural communication and connect the dots so we can try to begin to understand the dynamics of the situation in East Asia. And we do have a situation. Can you give us your perspective on what is motivating North and South Korea, China, and Japan?
0: Sure. First of all, it's very hard for me to explain my job to people. You did an excellent job. (laughs) I always have a lot more trouble trying to, when people ask me, well, what do you do for a living? Um, But that's a pretty good summary. I think the thing in the U.S. is that most people don't understand that people in the region have their own ideas, their own agendas, their own hopes, their own fears that are very different than the discussion you hear back in the United States, and that they act on those. And one of the benefits of my job is being able to see things through their eyes. Uh, And I think what's happening in North Korea right now is that people in the region are taking control of the situation because we're clearly not capable of formulating a rational response uh, under the current administration. North Korea has been pursuing nuclear weapons since the founding of the regime. Um, I think they were particularly inspired by China's early success in the 1960s. And they noticed how that success brought China, uh, communist China in particular, a status internationally uh, that uh, it would not have been able to attain otherwise given its level of economic development and its isolation at that point. As you remember, we recognized the government on Taiwan, the Republic of China, as the legitimate government of China all the way up to 1979. But that nuclear weapons test sort of made China a player, at least in North Korean eyes, that it otherwise wouldn't have. And I think that's that was the beginning of their reasons for wanting to pursue nuclear weapons. And so it's interesting that they've kept on with that consistently, despite all the international pressure. And now they feel like they finally succeeded. And for them, it's not so much a military accomplishment as it is a diplomatic accomplishment. A status accomplishment. So for that reason, when Kim is saying, we're done, we've got what we need, we're ready to stop, I think he's probably telling the truth. Because the political goal that was always the motivation for the nuclear weapons program, they've, they've achieved it.
1: So in your opinion, Kim Jong-un is not crazy, as many people would characterize him, but he's actually had a strategy and he's followed that and he's now at the point where he has what he wants, or what does he want?
0: Well, he's inherited this from his father and his grandfather, and he's modeling himself more after his grandfather even in his appearance than, than, uh, than his father. Uh, but if my assumption is right, that this really isn't about a military capability, a deterrent capability in the sense that military strategists or technological people talk about this, but that it's a political achievement, then I think that he's probably telling the truth about feeling that political achievement that his family has been pursuing for a long time, has been accomplished, has in fact been accomplished, is something that we can can believe in. That's a very rational and long-term pursuit of a clear objective that leads you to believe he's not crazy. On the other hand, the way the government treats its own population is just horrific and totally unnecessary. I mean, uh, human rights groups who've documented the gulags, the, the impoverishment, the lack of concern for the basic welfare of most of the population, is hard to describe as rational although we've seen this in many countries in the world. Um, so in that sense, you could say that he's certainly not a an admirable or trustworthy figure, and, and neither were his father or grandfather. But rationality in terms of having a goal and pursuing a goal is something that seems to be undeniable.
1: So what do you think his next step is?
0: Economic development.
1: So that's what he's after.
0: Right. So... Kim is going to be able to turn to his population and say, I know we've treated you horribly for 70 years, but we succeeded in what we set out to do. We have a nuclear weapon. And we've gotten the President of the United States to come to and talk to us. And so he'll be able to turn to his population and say, I know you've suffered, but it was worth it. We won. We, we've achieved what we set out to do. And now we can set about improving your standard of living in your life. And I think that's, they've already started that under uh, his government. Uh, The changes, the economic changes in North Korea from everyone who's been there, I have not personally myself been there, uh, describing what's happening is the economy has been improving a lot over the last 10 years and now it's poised for a sort of takeoff. And I think that's probably where he's gonna focus his energies.
1: What would an improved economy look like?
0: So an improved economy would be something like what happened in China during the early 1980s. Again, they're sort of following the Chinese model and the the Chinese look at the future of North Korea the way they look at their own past. So a gradual opening up of the economy, allowing for more market-based activity. People have a little bit more freedom to make choices about work and business uh, that'll stimulate economic development. Uh, And that will, you know, gradually bring up everybody's standard of living. The trick for the Kim regime is going to be holding on to political power once ordinary North Koreans have a higher standard of living and a general higher education about the world they live in and their place in it, whether they're going to be angry at the regime uh, about how they've had to suffer so long. And whether or not that was worth it. I think that's the biggest anxiety and the biggest problem that the North Korean regime faces. The thing they're afraid of most is their own population.
1: President Trump is poised to meet with Kim Jong un. Do you think that Kim Jong un will dismantle what he has built?
0: In terms of whether North Korea will dismantle, you know, denuclearize as they describe it. There's a lot of different opinions on that. Um, our Chinese colleagues don't see that as a realistic short term, and by short we're talking about the next 10 to 20 years, as a realistic short term uh, accomplishment. Only because it's the only bargaining chip that North Korea has with the United States, and as soon as they surrender it, they're they're going to they're going to lose whatever advantages they have in terms of being able to get what they want from us. Although they don't really want very much, they're not going to believe any assurance from the United States that we're not going to attack them. The United States is not going to withdraw its forces from Japan and South Korea. They're they're going to be present in reason. The United States is not going to stop doing all these exercises, which are actually more aimed at the Chinese than they are at the North Koreans. So the U.S. military presence is not going to go away, and since the U.S. military presence is not going to go away, the Chinese don't believe there's any chance at all that the North Koreans are going to give up what they have. But apparently, the North Koreans are going to stop going further. China wanted a freeze on missile tests and nuclear weapons tests, and it looks like that they've got that before the negotiations have even started. So it seems like China and North Korea have cut their deal already. Uh, And that probably is going to be enough for North Korea, for China to just open the economic window a little bit. North Korea has a tiny economy. It doesn't need all that many inputs from the outside to grow. And so it looks like they've already decided uh, what the future is going to be. And it's just a question of whether or not the international community is going to go along with that or not.
1: So what you're saying is that Kim Jong-un, from from the North Korean standpoint, they can have the meeting. If nothing happens, if a tiny bit of something happens, it will be declared a success. And then they'll move on because you think they've already cut this deal.
0: All they want is the meeting itself. So if the meeting happens, Kim has what he needs to turn to his population and say, we did it. You know we, we got we have the weapon we got the US president here
1: and they've got some relief from China so they' they can start growing so their this economy. is the
0: difficult part there are very strict UN sanctions in place and China has signed on to those sanctions so in order for China to open the economic door a little bit and for the South Koreans to do the same there is going to have to be some relaxation of those sanctions which means there's going to be have to have to be some concession from the United States to Relax those sanctions. They don't need to relax anything that's related to technological development or the missile program or the, uh, the nuclear uh, testing program. Just the things that have to do with the civilian economy. So the question is, what can North Korea give the United States in this meeting that will allow the United States to just back off a little bit on these most severe economic sanctions? And that, that, that will be a victory for them. And that will give the Chinese, who are going to honor their UN commitments. I mean, uh, for all the problems uh, we have with China on a variety of issues, China takes its word to the international community, not necessarily in bilateral agreements, which they don't like to make, especially trade agreements, for example, with the United States. But when it comes to anything they sign on internationally that has to do with international law, uh, they're going to try to honor that as best they can for their own reputation uh, in the world. So they're going to need some way to get out of some of these sanctions that they've signed up to. I think that, for their side, is going is, is what they're trying to get out of these negotiations. The United States has very unrealistic expectations. The idea that the North Koreans are going to denuclearize and, and verifiably get rid of everything they have in a two to five year period of time. Nobody I know in Asia, not the Japanese, not the, the Chinese, They do not imagine that as a possibility.
1: We'll be back in a moment with the second half of our interview. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. And now back to our interview. So another confounding issue with nuclear weapons is first use. Mm. What is the current policy on that, and how do these each of these countries interpret that?
0: So the United States actually used nuclear weapons, and they got two lessons out of that. The first lesson was it ended the war, and the general consensus, especially on the military and foreign policy establishment, was it was a useful thing to do. The second, though, is it was horrific. And as they learned about the long-term consequences of the use of the weapons by, you know, following the lives of the survivors, uh, a taboo against any future use of nuclear weapons took place and has been growing ever since. There is some sense in the world that maybe it's weakening because the people who lived through the experience are almost gone. And this is a natural human thing that happens I guess that's just the way we are as mm-hmm. human beings, maybe we have somebody on staff that can explain that psychology. But, if the, but I still think the taboo is pretty strong. The Chinese believe the taboo is very strong, which is why they have a small arsenal that's predicated on the assumption that the, the taboo is strong, that no nation would risk a nuclear war. And so the only reason they have nuclear weapons is to make sure that they have one that can get through and strike an adversary, which will give them pause before using them against the Chinese. The Indians have a no-first-use policy. Um, Russia used to have a no-first-use policy, but uh, doesn't anymore. The United States doesn't believe any of those things. They believe that everybody thinks about nuclear weapons the same way they do, which is it, that it's just like any other weapon. And unfortunately, the U.S. military and foreign policy establishment still thinks of nuclear weapons that way, something that actually can be used only in an extreme circumstance but something that actually can be used. And even President Obama, despite enormous pressure from our community and from uh, knowledgeable people inside his administration to have a no first use policy, still wouldn't do it because he wanted to preserve the option in certain extreme circumstances to use nuclear weapons first. The Trump administration, unfortunately, is now expanding the range of options where it would consider using nuclear weapons first.
1: Well, that that raises another interesting question, and that's the the uh, talk about developing low yield tactical nuclear weapons, which um, seems like that could be really disastrous. What are your thoughts on that, and how would how would say China respond to you know a small
0: nuclear weapon? So the first thing I think people need to know is we already have them. We don't need new ones. We already have low-yield nuclear weapons. We have, I think, seven different types of warheads, and we have 11 different yield or size options that range from 0.3 kilotons all the way up through, you know, uh, 1.2 megatons, I think, is the largest one we still have. Although I'm not certain about that, so don't hold me to numbers. But we already have low-yield weapons. The thing about the Trump administration is now they're celebrating the fact that we have these weapons, and they're talking about different new delivery vehicles they could put in place to get these into the battlefield and they're saying in a way that no u.s president has uh, since the height of the cold war that they're actually contemplating a lot of different scenarios in in which they might use them as and especially troubling to the chinese is that they would use them in a conventional war with china that if we got into a a large-scale conventional conflict with china and we felt like we were losing or not winning, that we might resort to them. The US military, assuming the Chinese think the same way, thinks the Chinese might use them first. But the Chinese have no low-yield nuclear options. Or their smallest bomb is well over 100 kilotons. So they haven't created an arsenal with the imagination that they would use them first. The thing to watch for is whether that changes in China. Uh, whether they decide that in response to this U.S. emphasis on low-yield weapons that they'll do the same. Personally, I don't see that happening because they've always faced that dilemma. We were threatening to use nuclear weapons against China and Korea. We, we threatened to use them against these island crises over Taiwan in, in 54 and 58, even when they didn't have nuclear weapons. So I don't think their policy is going to change, but that's something obviously that no one can can predict, especially given how closed their uh, system is. We have a lot of contacts in that system through the work we've done with Chinese scientists, especially in the labs over the last 30 years. Created an enormous network of scientists and engineers within the Chinese defense establishment through our summer symposiums that we can access and ask questions and get a sense of what's going on. Um, But those are essentially political decisions not technical decisions, and that's an area of Chinese life that's closed even to most of their own people, uh, and that certainly we don't have access to.
1: So, Gregory, you've lived in China for a number of years. Yes. Probably if you add them all up, it would be a couple of decades.
0: More than that, actually.
1: Yes. Okay. What would you say the biggest area for
0: misinterpretation is? Language is your only window to do that. At least that allows you to have broader communication in, in, in the other culture, and to forces you to describe the world using their language. And you begin to start to see things from their point of view. In the defense world, because of secrecy, and we don't have anybody in our bureaucracy who has those skills. If you stay a long time in China and you have a lot of Chinese friends, you're never going to get a security clearance, ever. So they don't have the ability, because of structural reasons that make a lot of sense, to be able to see things the way Chinese see things. And so we assume they think like we do. But actually, it's it's clear that they don't. And that's where all the problems come from.
1: So if we flip that around and... What do you think it is that China misinterprets about the U.S.?
0: I have to say, and maybe this has to do with the, the nature of superior and inferior relationships, power relationships that have existed between the West and China for a long time. They've been much more energetic in their efforts to learn about us than we have in the other direction. But they still face the same problems. So, for example, in the defense world, everything that comes out of the Pentagon or that comes out of the State Department, all these reports we produce, they take them like they're, you know, the word of God, you know, like everything that's in them is actual U.S. policy. And they don't understand the way these documents and committees and things are actually very complicated parts of a messy, indeterminate bureaucratic process that doesn't have a specific outcome. So they tend to see intention on our part where it doesn't exist, just like we do on, on their side. They assume a lot of things about us that aren't true because of their lack of familiarity with the way decisions are made in the United States, even though they spend a lot more time studying us than, than we spend studying them. And, and the Chinese, of course, you know, speak our language, speak English, uh, in much greater numbers than, than, than Americans speak Chinese.
1: So the answer is, if everyone would just sit down and talk, maybe we'd learn something. We do
0: not talk enough. We do not talk enough. And it's amazing because there is so much commerce and contact and things going on between China and the United States. But in the government world, in the security world, we just don't talk enough at all to, to the Chinese.
1: Well, Gregory... It's time for a short segment we call Sidelining Science with a focus today on how racism is one of the most effective ways to sideline science because it keeps people out. This particular story has a somewhat happy ending but here's a content notice for virulent anti-black prejudice. Our Shreya Dharvasula has the story.
2: So many inventions created for use in outer space and then repurposed have made lives immeasurably better here on Earth. Like um, satellite TV, memory foam, artificial limbs, and of course, freeze-dried ice cream. For the last two years, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, also known as NASA, has held a contest for school-age kids to do that same kind of repurposing using materials they can find in their schools or at home in a new way, to solve a problem. This challenge is meant to inspire the next generation of scientists and engineers, and the prize is that all winning teams, one per age group, get two days to geek out at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. This year, one high school team turned their attention to a problem that's been making headlines for years now, lead in our drinking water. The team devised a water purification system from drinking straws, copper shards, and other materials that could be installed in school water fountains to detect impurities in the water. Quoting the team from their press release, quote, We have a mission to be a part of the community activism and history in the making. Our water filtration system can help aid in that mission, end quote. Sounds awesome, right? Unfortunately, some online trolls learned about the contest. They learned that this particular high school team submitting their water purification system was made up of three African-American young women, the only all-black team to submit their idea to NASA. And the trolls then learned that there was a public voting system for each entry to the contest. These trolls took to NASA's site to vote up every other project from other teams. They encouraged others on various social media outlets to disrupt the voting and obscure the real results. And they said some nasty things about the 11th graders in the process. 11th graders! Juniors in high school, not even old enough to vote. And these 16 and 17-year-olds are hearing a loud and clear message that they should not even try to compete in the STEM world because racist people will act as gatekeepers to force them out. Fortunately, NASA realized something odd was happening on their voting site and closed the public voting system down early. They also explicitly spoke to the racism at play and how unwelcome it was in their public statement, saying, quote, It was brought to NASA's attention that some members of the public use social media not to encourage students and support STEM, but to attack a particular student team based on their race and encouraged others to disrupt the vote, and manipulate the contest. NASA continues to support outreach and education for all Americans and encourages all of our children to reach for the stars. According to a 2015 study by Joan Williams at the University of California, Hastings College of the Law, women of color in STEM fields face what she calls the double jeopardy of gender bias and racial discrimination. After surveying almost 600 women, and conducting in-depth interviews with 60 women of color, William found that the Latina and black female STEM workers report regularly being mistaken as janitors. She also found that black women were more likely than other women to report having to prove themselves over and over again, and that Latina scientists reported being expected to do more administrative work. So scientists don't really need any extra help with racism from internet trolls. There are already significant structural barriers to access to science education and careers in STEM for African-Americans. Not acknowledging that, or worse, actively working to preserve those barriers for young people of color is sidelining science.
1: Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science? Special thanks to Dr. Gregory Kulaki. Mm -hmm. Sidelining Science is brought to you by Shreya Dharvasula. Editing by Omari Spears. Music and additional editing by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Thanks, and see you next time.